Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. So I'm always looking for inspiration for um, studies we can get into, sermons, and no one really helps you understand the psychology of when you're supposed to present a message every week. Uh, that is no joke. So, so sometimes world events make it easy. Uh, then recently, I feel like my garden has helped me a little bit along that way. Uh, I had a thought not too many days back. I was in my garden and I thought, man, how much time do I spend on these weeds? Like, this just seems like a waste of time. I see some smiles that sounds like you can relate. And I just, I sat there for a second, I just thought, man, I see why people love Roundup. I see it, I get it. But I also have learned enough to know you can't spray your weeds around your tomatoes with Roundup expecting there to be no damage to your tomatoes. And I, I started to learn more all about that with really a lot of different things we put on our, our plants and things and in the soil, because it could be tempting to even for me, there's some weeds in the nice little walkways. Why don't I spray Roundup in those? Well, because I guess it gets into the soil and it's in the bacteria of the soil that's starting to get into the plant. And so, man, those weeds. So today, I was inspired by my weeds to talk about weeds. <laughs> and hopefully, we'll understand more why Jesus uh, used these parables, these things that he knew when somebody's staring in their garden at these weeds, they will understand more of the message of the gospel. And so here we go. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, uh, I might have mentioned this last week, but this idea of parables is very interesting. Jesus creating these stories so that somehow they, they somewhat veiled maybe the deeper truths of what he was saying, but they also built in a story where when people were doing that activity later, they could always somehow remember, oh, you know what, that lesson Jesus taught, and it's still phenomenal that all these years later, we can still learn lessons, and I can still be in my garden staring at weeds thinking, okay, Jesus talked about weeds. Weeds have been with us for a while. What is the lesson here? So here we go. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus was obsessed and passionate about telling people, I need to explain to you the kingdom of heaven, and I got to do it in a way that you understand. That's why it's really important when we're talking to others, let's make sure we're using words that they clearly understand what we're saying, not just what we're saying. So the kingdom of heaven, here it is. He's like, hmm, the kingdom of heaven, and he does this a lot of times, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Okay, off to a good start. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares or weeds 
among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, you know, these were somewhat like riddles too. Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? So there's a little bit of confusion, questioning. How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? You want us to go pull some weeds? But listen to how Jesus describes this. But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there's the parable. And you can imagine everyone was thinking and they're, they're chewing on this idea, but this wasn't so foreign because we're told in the East, men sometimes took revenge upon an enemy by strewing his newly sown fields with the seeds of some noxious weed that while growing closely resembled wheat. And darnel is believed to have been the weed that most closely resembles wheat. This week I was looking on one end of my garden and I thought, did I plant wheat here? I don't remember planting wheat. And there was this thing that had grown up and had the pods and I was convinced. I'm like, is this a wheat seed? But then as I was literally preparing this sermon, I thought, this was a darnel weed. Now, now darnel is interesting because what we learn is as wheat and darnel are growing together, they're both green and they both look similar and you really don't know. But as they ripen, the wheat can get that golden, even whitish brown color and the darnel goes black. So you can see a very much of a distinction when the harvest is ready. But until then, you're really not sure. I mean, they look the same, they seem the same, are they the same? But enemies did this. Someone tilled their field. They knew they planted it with wheat. They knew this was the prime growing area for wheat. But they said, let's sow some of this darnel in the field. Now, it's interesting. I learned about this darnel that a lot of people would use this uh, to spike beer because it actually is somewhat of a mind-altering substance. And so you can imagine some farmer hoping to have wheat, and they might not, might not have had all the ways in which we do things today. So you can imagine the frustration of, I was growing wheat, and somebody came in here and planted darnel, all these weeds. And then as you and I buy some of that wheat from that farmer that's supposedly 100% wheat, we get it home and make it, and we, we feel a little confused, and we're not sure. What else is in this bread? Well... This always was stressful to farmers, so they were on guard for it. And it made me think about today, like what would be the modern version? You know, maybe it's inserting, uh, you know, some cyber warfare in the world and, 
inserting some false code or programming information that tells a system to do something different. And I thought, this was the livelihood of someone. And then somebody came in and was deceptive about it. But I thought, to get the most out of this, I want us to take about two minutes, turn with someone near you, maybe behind you. You've just heard this story, this parable from Jesus. What are the lessons you're hearing? So we've got a two-minute clock. I want you to just discuss it with someone nearby. You heard this parable of Jesus because where we're going next, the disciples, like usual, they go to Jesus. Okay, what were you really talking about? So we're going there next. But for two minutes, talk to someone near you. What did you get out of that story? All right. Hope you got some good lessons in there. And you can imagine what it was like listening to Jesus. You know, it was like, Jeremy, what, what do you think he was really talking about there? You know, what, what, was, what was going on there? Have you ever had that happen to you? Has somebody done that to your field? Do you know anybody that's happened to? Well, why would he say don't, you know, they're asking all these questions. And somehow, some way, Jesus' disciples probably put on a smile and people thought they had it figured out. But in reality, no, because we get into verse 36. Jesus sends the multitude away. The disciples come to him and say, explain to us the parable. Now, this is interesting. If you look through Matthew 13, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus is sharing a number of parables. Uh, Jesus is sharing a number of parables, but the disciples ask him about this one. That's interesting. If you heard about this one, the leaven, the mustard seed. <coughs> but he shares about this one. If anybody could grab me some water maybe in the back, that would be a huge blessing. I think I swallowed a fly. Uh, so in verse 37, <coughs> it says, Jesus answers them and says, He who sows... <coughs> Excuse me. The good seed. Ah, thank you so much. I was trying to stay vegetarian and didn't do it. He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So now Jesus is identifying it. So interesting that he doesn't do that to the multitude. Maybe it's that you tell somebody the whole story and they don't really want to dig and really know. What's he talking about? Maybe Jesus knew, knew, I need the Holy Spirit to really impress upon people what I'm saying as they get back to their work. I think one of the biggest reasons, as I mentioned before, that we don't understand the Gospels like we do is we don't live like they did. We're not outside. We're not with the animals. We're not with the fields. So a lot of this is just confusing. And we don't know all those struggles and things. So they get it, though. He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And it's interesting, the commentary on this says that we should see this as the church in the world. Because it's not too hard of a stretch to say where Jesus seems to be going is describing a difference in people. And when, when we talk about the world, it's, well, they aren't, they aren't guided by Scripture, so, so this application is the church in the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Jesus is very clear. So the sower, here's what's interesting. When we go back, 
is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Jesus is clearly, by deduction, saying, that's me. I'm the one who sows the seed. I'm responsible for getting the seed out. Which kind of is a, is a relief, if you really think about, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, but I have, I thought, man, plans I have in place, things I want to do, those can even be very noble uh, church-related, mission-related plans. You know, Lord, we want to build a church to do more ministry and community here. What if the prophecies fulfilled in rapid succession and Jesus returned? Lord, that would be a giant waste of money. That we started a building project, that we had the drywall up, and then you returned. Now, you may say, oh, that's, that's kind of funny. But for some reason, I think on these things like, well, Lord, we should have used the money on something else. Why would you let us start down a path and feel like we wasted it? But Jesus gets the seed out into the world, and he begins to describe this idea. The devil sowed the weeds. Fascinating about that is the disciples have a little question. Now, you sowed good seed, right? And I think this may be the underlying lesson of this story, which is there's a lot of us. Let's not just say a lot of them out there. There's a lot of us who really wonder, is God good? He says he is. People say he is. Supposedly, he's the one sowing good seed. But I don't know. Is is God good? And, And to be fair, I think that's a fair question to ask. Because even the disciples who are around him all the time, you know, you said you sowed good seed, right? I mean, there's, there's question there. They're not quite sure. Because how could this have happened? And Jesus just starts to get into it. The enemy sowed the seed of the weeds. The harvest is the end of the age. We see that in the book of Revelation. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Fascinating that in the midst of all this conflict, the angels themselves are the ones that are you know, as we get into the application here, they're the ones actively involved in the closing moments of time in helping people make a decision of where we're at. So the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Some very strong language. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So you can imagine we're the disciples and we're listening to this and it's, wow, there's, there's something deep here going on. And there's some beautiful commentary on this. So it is from enmity to Christ that Satan scatters his evil seed among the good grain of the kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was reading this, it's like, look, you want to you wanna mess up someone's crop, you do what Samson did. Tie foxtails together, light them on fire, and let them run through the fields and burn it to the ground. But the problem with that type of warfare is, oh, we know exactly who did this. And when you have a clear common enemy... People, we will unite against that enemy. But the devil is slick because he says, no, 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 no. I'm a big fan of civil war. 
rather than an enemy walking in here and all of us knowing that's the enemy, the devil's strategy is sowing some seeds, bringing some people in that look like us, maybe us, and using us to confuse others. But, but you were a leader in the church, and you're supposed to do what's right. And I saw that, and that was wrong. You're supposed to be held to a higher standard, and you're not supposed to do that. So, so then there's confusion, and you don't know what is wheat, what is weeds, what is going on. <clears throat> then it says this, the fruit of his sowing, this is of the devil's sowing, he attributes to the Son of God. So there's the character issue going on. Is God good? Well, maybe. Maybe he sowed some of the bad seed. Maybe he's in the confusion game. By bringing into the church those who bear Christ's name while they deny his character, the wicked one causes that God shall be dishonored and the work of salvation misrepresented and souls imperiled. Such a strategy. You know, as, as we think of this country, like a common enemy flying from the eastern shore or, or coming in from the west, if there was a fleet of ships, very clear, they're the enemy, if, if they clearly are, and we're going to unite. But not so with the devil's master strategy, which we know is his strategy. Destroy from within. It says, Christ's servants are grieved as they see true and false believers mingled in the church. If you've ever been uh, a kid in, in a church and someone older than you didn't treat you fairly, you could probably relate with this. Man, I thought the church was a safe place. Maybe you've, you've been that person. You've treated someone, ugh, and you're like, oh, I could see why there was a misunderstanding of the wheat and the weeds. They long to do something. This is us. When we see someone that's not representing Jesus well, we long to do something to cleanse the church. Rightfully so. If a kid is on the playground, nine kids are having fun, and one kid's the bully, the natural inclination is, get the bully out of here. Like the servants of the householder, they are ready to uproot the weeds. But Christ says to them, this is the fascinating thing of Jesus, nope, unless while you gather up the weeds, the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. And then Jesus' words, let both grow together until the harvest. You only can, I think, really understand this lesson if you have a plant that you have been growing, maybe even from seed. And it's growing up. And you've watered this, and the sun has gotten to this plant, and then a weed has somehow come out of nowhere, and it's nearby, and the quickest, easiest impulse is that weed shouldn't be there. And you pull that weed, and guess what happens? You know what happens. The whole, both plants come up. And then you realize, oh no. Roots are broken. Now you have the wheat and the weed. And this is why Jesus describes this in this parable. Because we can grow up next to each other, and someone can come. And Jacob, you and I are buddies. And somebody comes and says, you know what? Jared's got to go. Get him out right now. And we become such close friends that he doesn't know the sins, the nastiness that may rightfully deserve the way I treat people is not accepted here. But Jacob 
He doesn't know all that. And so as soon as you toss me out, guess who's going to? He's going to, because he's like, you know what? They mistreated my friend, and I'm going. And so this is the delicacy of a lesson we'll learn when we grow little seeds into plants, that weeds come along and they intertangle their roots all around that plant. But Jesus says, don't do that. Now, I think there's a delicate lesson there, just the delicacy of dealing with each other. I've really been studying that idea lately. How do you, how do, you do this? Should we try to uproot from the church those whom we suppose to be spurious Christians? We should be sure to make mistakes. Often we regard as hopeless as those whom Christ is drawing to himself. Were we to deal with these souls according to our imperfect judgment, it would perhaps extinguish their last hope. Think about that. We're trying to do the right thing. We want to do the right thing. Yet what we don't know is the roots are intertangled. And in our attempt to do the right thing, we can cause trouble in a lot of ways. Many who think themselves Christians will at last be found wanting. Many will be in heaven who their neighbors supposed would never enter there. Can you imagine? People, you're like, oh, they definitely don't have their ticket punched. Jesus is literally polishing their living room in paradise. Man judges from appearance, but God judges the heart. The tares and the wheat are to grow together until the harvest, and the harvest, in this commentary of Christ's object lesson says, is the end of probationary time. And these roots being intertwined, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Someone who's been disciplined or what have you, I'm more and more convinced it's not so much of whether right or wrong is being done. It's how, <clears throat> how do we handle that? How do you deal with that delicacy of, of someone? You know, if you've ever employed someone and, hey, their behavior is unacceptable in the workplace and you've got to let them go. How you do that, even though as justified as, as it is, other people are watching. And they're thinking, wow, is that how you treat people you disagree with? And perhaps the, the, there's no better example in this than the highest of the angels begins to go around heaven and begins to insinuate ideas into the minds of other angels. You know, what are your feelings about the government? And I don't know, it's pretty good. Like angels were naturally happy and honest. It's pretty good. And I mean, I don't have really any complaints. But if you had a complaint, what would it be? Well, I guess, I don't know, maybe it would be. So now, literally getting them to imagine concerns, probably be this. Okay. And then we're told Lucifer would take those, and he'd go to someone else, and he'd say, Ralph, I heard a concern from this angel over here. And then Ralph would go to somebody else and say, hey, apparently there's some concerns. Do you feel this way? And literally, we're described, we're told imperceptibly, Lucifer is an innocent bystander. All through these innocent conversations that begin to weave through heaven. <clears throat> and we're told, had God immediately destroyed Satan, as in everyone in the garden of God here, this, you never heard of it before, this is a weed. It says the holy angels would not have perceived the justice and love of God. It's fascinating. A doubt of God's goodness would have been 
as evil seed that would yield the bitter fruit of sin and woe. By just clearly saying, Lucifer's in the wrong, he's got to go. There would have been so many angels that would have said, this is unfair. Therefore, the author of evil was spared fully to develop his character. Would you agree that's a little bit dangerous? Seems a little dangerous. God has been patient, though, for 6,000 years, if we take the creation account. Even to the point where he gave himself on Calvary, he's continued to let Lucifer, for some reason, play out his case so that no one is left without an excuse. And then the commentary in Christ's Object Lesson says, Shall we not be as patient toward others as the Lord of heaven has been toward Satan? Wow. With such a clear track record, with such a rap sheet as Satan, yet God still has somehow not destroyed him. Throughout church history, people who who we've seen in the end of the story are not genuine, yet somehow they get to fellowship with the genuine. Ananias and Sapphira, Simon Magus, and then probably the biggest one, Judas Iscariot. When you think about Judas, he's around the disciples. He's handling the money. Jesus is trusting him to cast out demons, all the while knowing this guy's bad news. Yet he's not going to be left without the excuse of we treated him kindly, lovingly. But this is what happens usually when we finally can't figure out how to persuade people with love and kindness. What does the church do? It usually, as the pattern goes through history, when the church loses its power and influence in the community, it turns to force. And it goes like this. Notwithstanding Christ's warning, men have sought to uproot uproot the tares. To punish those who were supposed to be evildoers, the church has resorted to civil power. But this is the spirit of Satan, not the spirit of Christ, that inspires such acts. This is Satan's own method of bringing the world under his dominion. That was the most eye-opening sentence of all of my study in this. You know, how how would the devil take over the world, really? Like if you were just, we're in an elevator, and the devil was to say, this is my game plan. Here it is. I'm going to make the church lose its power in the world, its influence, And I'm going to have it resort to forcing people to do what it says. And I quote the sentence again. This is Satan's own method of bringing the world under his dominion. Through the church of Jesus. Reaching out to force people to believe and think like them. God has been misrepresented through the church by this way of dealing with those supposed to be a heretic. I mean, just a pattern. We see it over and over again. Now, the temptation now is, well, we're beyond that. Well, are we? Even, even us here, are we really beyond thinking, you know, the government needs to step in? We've gone far enough into the camp of godlessness. The government needs to get involved, and people are either going to be forced to do it or else. 
And so you can see that temptation is there. But it says, not judgment and condemnation of others, but humility and distrust of self is the teaching of Christ's parable. The fact that men are in the church does not prove them Christians. I was thinking that could almost be like the, the tagline of Christianity. Just because people attend our worship services doesn't mean they're Christians. It'd be probably one of the most honest statements in the world. People would say, oh, they're even admitting, but that's really what Jesus is describing here. Don't assume that just because people say they're one thing, that just because a field of wheat looks all green, don't assume every plant in that field is wheat. Because there's an enemy in the world. This is what, unfortunately, most of Christianity stopped teaching long ago. I think much of Christianity just teaches God can kind of change his feeling. Maybe sometimes he helps people and other times he hurts people. And, and it's a confusing. And then it's like, wait a second, but you're teaching me this is like a father God? This sounds like a schizophrenic crazy person. He's good, he's bad, he's bad, he's good. Rather than this beautiful picture of Scripture, there is an enemy. And he is the one. He doesn't burn the fields down. He just sows some seeds here and there to confuse everyone. And I just love that again. The fact that men are in the church does not prove them as Christians. It says the tares are permitted to grow among the wheat. And then this is reminding me in my garden this week. To have all the advantage of sun and shower. But in the time of the harvest is when you see the difference. My little sprinkler system waters the weeds and my tomato plants. The sunshine is hitting my weeds and my tomato plants. And, and I'll never forget a statement I read about the idea that for many, this may be the only heaven they ever experience. Make it count. Let them enjoy the rain. Let them enjoy the sunshine. And the last idea here, Christ's Object Lessons, page 74, says, profession is as nothing in the scale. It is character that decides destiny. And character is easy to talk about. Character is easy to theorize over. Uh, it's a lot different, though, when, when uh, someone hands you a large check or offers you an incentive for a job or to do something that your belief system doesn't align with. And then that's where you start to ask, does my conscience and my convictions, do they have a price? Can they be bought? And I just love that idea that what we profess in the scale of God, it doesn't even matter. It's, it's the character that decides the destiny. So I think, I think in these lessons of Jesus, we have opportunity to learn. For me, the glaring lesson I got from this was there's a delicacy and how we treat each other. That, that only in a really a garden with, with loose soil can you really start to figure out the roots of all of us are intertwined. And there's some who may, we may feel, you know, they're not doing what I think they should. And maybe they feel the same way about us. You know, I was thinking earlier about that idea of God has brought people into the church that may have professed to be Christians, but perhaps weren't. I thought, yeah, he brought me. I've been that. And, and then mistreat people, and no wonder people are confused. Don't you attend a church? 
Don't you profess to be something? And yet I just, I'm more and more convinced that the profession we have that is so beautiful, that is a message and a story that makes more sense of this world we live in, this life, the past and the future than anything else. But the profession won't take us through tough times in life. I felt so guilty um, even this morning as I was preparing to share this message. Someone texted me and said, one of our church members, that their sister-in-law died, 33-year-old heart attack, left behind kids and family. I thought, this sermon is like a waste of time. I thought, there's, there's just so many issues in life that we deal with. And I thought, but, but the, I guess the saving grace of why Jesus even spent time on this rather than only dealing about sickness and death was, hey, in the meantime, it is how we treat each other. That we, we talk a big game, and we should. I'm, trust me, we should talk a big game, but we've got to live it up with how we treat each other. There's no, there's no uh, glossing over things that need to be righted in this story. Scripture's big on, hey, make wrongs right, even to the point where make wrongs right that you didn't even do. I mean, the story of Daniel teaches us that. I had a very intimate conversation with, with someone this week. I said, there are, there are a lot of people. I can think of 10 people by name. They, they, they've talked to me about this. You have wronged them. They feel hurt. They feel damaged. They, they're not sure if, if God is as clear as what they've been told because they feel hurt. Please, I'm coming to you as a brother. Please make this right. Whether you feel it's fair or not, go to them and just apologize to them and say, you know what? You feel offended. I need to apologize to you. I want, I want to apologize anything I may have done. Like, we need to make these wrongs right. And so as we consider this idea of the wheat and the tares, it's really a beautiful lesson on how we treat each other. And I just hope we will be walking that delicate line here as we walk together. Lord, help us to preach and stand and live for principle. That's what the world needs. The world doesn't have any standards. Everyone's bought. People supposed to be for our good in government, we find out they're bought. <clears throat> And that's a hard thing to, to swallow. But at the same time, even some of those of us or others who we feel, well, maybe they've compromised or they're compromising on things that are, we're still walking with them. And Jesus hasn't given up on them. And if, if you're in one of those people's camp where you're like, well, I don't know if I've, if I wavered, Jesus hasn't given up on you either. And sometimes we need each other to remind ourselves, Jesus hasn't given up on you. I haven't given up on you. And we don't know how this all shakes out until the very end. But in the meantime, I am rooting for you. I'm in your corner. And God is going to see us through this. And that's my prayer. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.